Hello, and welcome to Time's Signature, our third episode of the Seagull Project's Great Souls podcast. Time's Signature's stories are about the rhythm of American art and artists as we look back through the past 100 years. It's about the memories that come back to haunt us. The rhythm that wakes us up and walks us to the ballot box. The same one that marched through Selma and still marches through Minneapolis and across America today. If you enjoy these stories, then please consider donating to The Seagull Project. Think of it like a pay-what-you-can ticket price. You can find the link wherever you found this podcast, or you can just head over to theseagullproject.org. I'll wait a second in case you want to pause and take care of that right now. While you're doing that, I should say that we are also releasing a beautiful audio drama next month called I Take Your Hand in Mine, based on the letters of Anton Chekhov and Olga Knipper. We just recorded it at Jack Straw Studios in Seattle, and it's currently in the throes of my home production office. (laughs) So keep your eyes peeled for that. Okay, it's been a while since we've released anything. The combined national predicament led us to taking a few months off to listen and grow after our last episode released way back in May. The world feels so different now, and while listening the past few months, I just couldn't help get over the fact that I had heard these stories before. Not just in my lifetime, but in my parents' lifetime, my great-grandparents' lifetime. These surges in racism, anti-Semitism, and authoritarianism are in fact not flashes in the pan, and for us to treat them like they are is a huge disservice to all the advocates and sacrifices that were made throughout history. The current civil rights movement is in fact not that different from the famous MLK 60s that are spoon-fed to us from our history books as if the end of Jim Crow represented the end of systemic racism in America. In fact, it was this feeling of a post-legislation job well done that let the majority of Americans go to sleep. The Sleepy America is the same one that eventually gifted us the past four years in a subconsciously developing mass of white supremacy and anti-Semitism that has boiled up through the cracks in America. None of these stories are inherently about politics, but they are all impacted by them. They could all just as easily have happened today as they could have 70 years ago, and that slow sea change is at the heart of our focus. The following stories by Langston Hughes, Anne Petrie, Isaac Basheva Singer, are left uncensored, as they were originally published in English. Some of the language is inappropriate, but we find these stories to be important cultural touchstones that serve to remind us of the America that was, so we continue reflecting on who we are today. First up, a complex social portrait as depicted by the legendary Langston Hughes, one where the perspectives of the past gift a difficult reminder to the present. One Friday morning as read by Claudine Mboligik-Polani-Nako. The thrilling news did not come directly to Nancy Lee, but it came in little indirections that finally added themselves up to one tremendous fact. She had won the prize! But being a calm and quiet young lady, she did not say anything although the whole high school buzzed with rumors, guesses, reportedly authentic announcements on the part of students who had no right to be making announcements at all, since no student really knew yet who had won this year's art scholarship. But Nancy Lee's drawing was so good, her lines so sure, her colors so bright and harmonious, that certainly no other student in the senior class at George Washington High was thought to have very much of a chance. Yet... You could never tell. Last year, nobody had expected Joe Williams to win the Artist Club Scholarship with that funny modernistic watercolor he had done of the high-level bridge. In fact, 
It was hard to make out there was a bridge until you had looked at the picture for a long time. Still, Joe Williams got the prize, was feted by the community's leading painters, club women, and society folks at a big banquet at the Park Rose Hotel, and was now an award student at the art school, the city's only art school. Nancy Lee Johnson was a colored girl, a few years out of the South, but seldom did her high school classmates think of her as colored. She was smart, pretty, and brown, and fitted in well with the life of the school. She stood high in scholarship, played a swell game of basketball, had taken part in the senior musical in a soft, velvety voice, and had never seemed to intrude or stand out, except in pleasant ways, so it was seldom even mentioned, her color. Nancy Lee sometimes forgot she was colored herself. She liked her classmates and her school. Particularly, she liked her art teacher, Miss Dietrich, the tall, red-haired woman who taught her law and order in doing things, and the beauty of working step by step until a job is done, a picture finished, a design created, or a block print carved out of nothing but an idea and a smooth square of linoleum, inked, proofs made, and finally put down on paper. Clean, sharp, beautiful, individual, unlike any other in the world, thus making the paper have a meaning nobody else could give it except Nancy Lee. That was the wonderful thing about true creation. You made something nobody else on earth could make but you. Ms. Dietrich was the kind of teacher who brought out the best in her students, but their own best, not anybody else's copied best. For anybody else's best, great though it may be, even Michelangelo's, wasn't enough to please Ms. Dietrich, dealing with the creative impulses of young men and women living in an American city in the Middle West and being American. Nancy Lee was proud of being American, a Negro American with blood out of Africa a long time ago, too many generations back to count. But her parents had taught her the beauties of Africa, its strength, its song, its mighty rivers, its early smelting of iron, its building of the pyramids, and its ancient and important civilizations. And Ms. Dietrich had discovered for her the sharp and humorous lines of African sculpture, Benin, Congo, Maconde. Nancy Lee's father was a mail carrier, her mother a social worker in a city settlement house. Both parents had gone to Negro colleges in the South, and her mother had gotten a further degree in social work from a northern university. Her parents were, like most Americans, simple, ordinary people who had worked hard and steadily for their education. Now they were trying to make it easier for Nancy Lee to achieve learning than it had been for them. They would be very happy when they heard of the award to their daughter. Yet, Nancy did not tell them. To surprise them would be better. Besides, there had been a promise. Casually, one day, Ms. Dietrich asked Nancy Lee what color frame she thought would be best on her picture. That had been the first inkling. Blue, Nancy Lee said. Although the picture had been entered in the Artist Club contest a month ago, Nancy Lee did not hesitate in her choice of a color for the possible frame. 
since she could still see her picture clearly in her mind's eye, for that picture waiting for the blue frame had come out of her soul, her own life, and had bloomed into miraculous being with Miss Dietrich's help. It was, she knew, the best watercolor she had painted in her four years as a high school art student, and she was glad she had made something Miss Dietrich liked well enough to permit her to enter in the contest before she graduated. It was not a modernistic picture in the sense that you had to look at it a long time to understand what it meant. It was just a simple scene in the city park on a spring day, with the trees still leaflessly lacy against the sky, the new grass fresh and green, a flag on a tall pole in the center, children playing, and an old Negro woman sitting on a bench with her head turned. A lot for one picture, to be sure. But it was not there in heavy and final detail like a calendar. Its charm was that everything was light and airy, happy like spring, with a lot of blue sky, paper-white clouds, and air showing through. You could tell that the old Negro woman was looking at the flag, and that the flag was proud in the spring breeze, and that the breeze helped to make the children's dresses billow as they played. Miss Dietrich had taught Nancy Lee how to paint spring, people, and a breeze on what was only a plain white piece of paper from the supply closet. But Miss Dietrich had not said, make it like any other spring, people, breeze ever seen before. She let it remain Nancy Lee's own. That is how the old Negro woman happened to be there, looking at the flag. For in her mind, the flag, the spring, and the woman formed a kind of triangle, holding a dream Nancy Lee wanted to express. White stars on a blue field, spring, children, ever-growing life, and an old woman. Would the judges at the artist club like it? One wet, rainy April afternoon, Ms. O'Shea, the girl's vice principal, sent for Nancy Lee to stop by her office as school closed. Pupils without umbrellas or raincoats were clustered in doorways hoping to make it home between showers. Outside, the skies were gray. Nancy Lee's thoughts were suddenly gray, too. She did not think she had done anything wrong. Yet that tight little knot came in her throat just the same as she approached Ms. O'Shea's door. Perhaps she had banged her locker too often and too hard. Perhaps the note in French she had written to Sally halfway across the study hall, just for fun, had never gotten to Sally, but into Ms. O'Shea's hands instead. Or maybe she was failing in some subject and wouldn't be allowed to graduate. Chemistry! A pang went through the pit of her stomach. She knocked on Ms. O'Shea's door. That familiarly solid and competent voice said, Come in. Ms. O'Shea had a way of making you feel welcome, even if you came to be expelled. Sit down, Nancy Lee Johnson, said Ms. O'Shea. I have something to tell you. Nancy Lee sat down. But I must ask you to promise not to tell anyone yet. I won't, Ms. O'Shea. Nancy Lee said, wondering what on earth the principal had to say to her. You are about to graduate, Ms. O'Shea said. 
and we shall miss you. You have been an excellent student, Nancy, and you will not be without honors on the senior list, as I am sure you know. At that point, there was a light knock on the door. Ms. O'Shea called out, Come in! And Ms. Dietrich entered. May I be a part of this too? She asked, tall and smiling. Of course, Ms. O'Shea said. I was just telling Nancy Lee what we thought of her, but I hadn't gotten around to giving her the news. Perhaps, Ms. Dietrich, you'd like to tell her yourself? Ms. Dietrich was always direct. Nancy Lee, she said, your picture has won the Artist Club Scholarship. The slender brown girl's eyes widened. Her heart jumped. Then her throat tightened again. She tried to smile, but instead, tears came to her eyes. Dear Nancy Lee, Ms. O'Shea said, we are so happy for you. The elderly white woman took her hand and shook it warmly while Ms. Dietrich beamed with pride. Nancy Lee must have danced all the way home. She never remembered quite how she got there through the rain. She hoped she had been dignified, but certainly she hadn't stopped to tell anybody her secret on the way. Raindrops, smiles, and tears mingled on her brown cheeks. She hoped her mother hadn't gotten home yet and that the house was empty. She wanted to have time to calm down and look natural before she had to see anyone. She didn't want to be bursting with excitement, having a secret to contain. Ms. O'Shea's calling her to the office had been in the nature of a preparation and a warning. The kind elderly vice principal said she did not believe in catching young ladies unawares, even with honors, so she wished her to know about the coming award. In making acceptance speeches, she wanted her to be calm, prepared, not nervous, overcome, and frightened. So Nancy Lee was asked to think about what she would say when the scholarship was conferred upon her a few days hence, both at the Friday morning high school assembly hour, when the announcement would be made, and at the evening banquet of the Artist Club. Nancy Lee promised the vice principal to think calmly about what she would say. Ms. Dietrich had then asked for some facts about her parents, her background, and her life, since such material would probably be desired for the papers. Nancy Lee had told her how, six years before, they had come up from the Deep South, her father having been successful in achieving a transfer from the one post office to another, a thing he had long sought in order to give Nancy Lee a chance to go to school in the North. Now, they lived in a modest Negro neighborhood, went to see the best plays when they came to town, and had been saving to send Nancy Lee to art school in case she were permitted to enter. But the scholarship would help a great deal, for they were not rich people. Now mother can have a new coat next winter, Nancy Lee thought, because my tuition will all be covered for the first year, and once in art school, there are other scholarships I can win. Dreams began to dance through her head, plans and ambitions, beauties she would create for herself, her parents, and the Negro people. For Nancy Lee possessed a deep and reverent race pride. She could see the old woman in her picture, really her grandmother in the South, lifting her head to the bright stars on the flag in the distance. A Negro in America, often hurt, discriminated against, 
sometimes lynched, but always there were the stars on the blue body of the flag. Was there any other flag in the world that had so many stars? Nancy Lee thought deeply, but she could remember none in all the encyclopedias or geographies she had ever looked into. Hitch your wagon to a star, Nancy Lee thought, dancing home in the rain. Who were our flag makers? Friday morning came, the morning when the world would know. Her high school world, the newspaper world, her mother and dad. Dad could not be there at the assembly to hear the announcement, nor see her prize picture displayed on the stage, nor listen to Nancy Lee's little speech of acceptance. But Mother would be able to come, although Mother was much puzzled as to why Nancy Lee was so insistent she be at school on that particular Friday morning. When something is happening, something new and fine, something that will change your very life, it is hard to go to sleep at night for thinking about it and hard to keep your heart from pounding or a strange little knot of joy from gathering in your throat. Nancy Lee had taken her bath, brushed her hair until it glowed, and had gone to bed thinking about the next day, the big day, when before 3,000 students, she would be the one student honored. Her painting, the one painting, to be acclaimed as the best of the year from all the art classes of the city. Her short speech of gratitude was ready. She went over it in her mind, not word for word because she didn't want it to sound as if she had learned it by heart, but she let the thoughts flow simply and sincerely through her consciousness many times. When the president of the artist club presented her with the medal and scroll of the scholarship award, she would say, judges and members of the artist club, I want to thank you for this award that means so much to me personally and through me to my people, the colored people of this city, who sometimes are discouraged and bewildered, thinking that color and poverty are against them. I accept this award with gratitude and pride, not for myself alone, but for my race that believes in American opportunity and American fairness and the bright stars in our flag. I thank Ms. Dietrich and the teachers who made it possible for me to have the knowledge and training that lie behind this honor you have conferred upon my painting. When I came here from the South a few years ago, I was not sure how you would receive me. You received me well. You have given me a chance and helped me along the road I wanted to follow. I suppose the judges know that every week here at Assembly, the students of this school pledge allegiance to the flag. I shall try to be worthy of that pledge and of the help and friendship and understanding of my fellow citizens of whatever race or creed and of our American dream of liberty and justice for all. That would be her response before the students in the morning. How proud and happy the Negro pupils would be, perhaps almost as proud as they were of the one colored star on the football team. Her mother would probably cry with happiness. Thus, Nancy Lee went to sleep, dreaming of a wonderful tomorrow. The bright sunlight of an April morning woke her. There was breakfast with her parents, their half-amused and puzzled faces across the table, wondering what could be this secret that made her eyes so bright. The swift walk to school, the clock in the tower almost nine, 
hundreds of pupils streaming into the long, rambling old building that was the city's largest high school. The sudden quiet of the homeroom after the bell rang, then the teacher opening her record book to call the roll. But just before she began, she looked across the room until her eyes located Nancy Lee. Nancy, she said, Ms. O'Shea would like to see you in her office, please. Nancy Lee rose and went out while the names were being called, and the word present added its period to each name. Perhaps, Nancy Lee thought, the reporters from the papers had already come. Maybe they wanted to take her picture before assembly, which wasn't until ten o'clock. Last year they had had the photograph of the winner of the award in the morning papers as soon as the announcement had been made. Nancy Lee knocked at Ms. O'Shea's door. Come in! The vice principal stood at her desk. There was no one else in the room. It was very quiet. Sit down, Nancy Lee, she said. Ms. O'Shea did not smile. There was a long pause. The seconds went by slowly. I do not know how to tell you what I have to say, the elderly woman began, her eyes on the papers on her desk. I am indignant and ashamed for myself and for this city. Then she lifted her eyes and looked at Nancy Lee in the neat blue dress sitting there before her. You are not to receive the scholarship this morning. Outside in the hall, the electric bells announcing the first period rang, loud and interminably long. Ms. O'Shea remained silent. To the brown girl there in the chair, the room grew suddenly smaller, 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 and there was no air. She could not speak. Ms. O'Shea said, When the committee learned that you were colored, they changed their plans. Still Nancy Lee said nothing, for there was no air to give breath to her lungs. Here is the letter from the committee, Nancy Lee. Ms. O'Shea picked it up and read the final paragraph to her. It seems to us wiser to arbitrarily rotate the award among the various high schools of the city from now on, and especially in this case since the student chosen happens to be colored, a circumstance which, unfortunately, had we known, might have prevented this embarrassment. But there have never been any Negro students in the local art school, and the presence of one there might create difficulties for all concerned. We have high regard for the quality of Nancy Lee Johnson's talent, but we do not feel it would be fair to honor it with the Artist Club Award. Ms. O'Shea paused. She put the letter down. Nancy Lee, I am very sorry to have to give you this message. But my speech, Nancy Lee said, was about, the words stuck in her throat, about America. Ms. O'Shea had risen. She turned her back and stood looking out the window at the spring tulips in the schoolyard. I, I thought, since the award would be made at assembly right after our oath of allegiance, the words tumbled out. The words tumbled almost hysterically from Nancy Lee's throat now. I would put part of the flag salute in my speech, you know, Ms. O'Shea, that part about liberty and, and justice for all. I know, said Ms. O'Shea, slowly facing the room again. But America is only what we who believe in it make it. I am Irish, 
you may not know, Nancy Lee, but years ago we were called the Dirty Irish, and mobs rioted against us in the big cities, and we were invited to go back where we came from. But we didn't go, and we didn't give up, because we believed in the American dream and in our power to make that dream come true. Difficulties, yes. Mountains to climb, yes. Discouragements to face, yes. Democracy to make, democracy to make, yes. That is it, Nancy Lee. We still have in this world of ours democracy to make. You and I, Nancy Lee. But the premise and the base are here. The lines of the Declaration of Independence and the words of Lincoln are here, and the stars in our flag. Those who deny you this scholarship do not know the meaning of those stars, but it's up to us to make them know. As a teacher in the public schools of this city, I myself will go before the school board and ask them to remove from our system the offer of any prizes or awards denied to any students because of race or color. Suddenly, Ms. O'Shea stopped speaking. Her clear, clear blue eyes looked into those of the girl before her. The woman's eyes were full of strength and courage. Lift up your head, Nancy Lee, and smile at me. Ms. O'Shea stood against the open window with the green lawn and the tulips beyond. The sunlight tangled in her gray hair, her voice an electric flow of strength to the hurt spirit of Nancy Lee. The abolitionists who believed in freedom when there was slavery must have been like that. The first white teachers who went into the Deep South to teach the freed slaves must have been like that. All those who stand against ignorance, narrowness, hate, and mud on stars must be like that. Nancy Lee lifted her head and smiled. The bell for assembly rang. She went through the long hall, filled with students, toward the auditorium. There will be other rewards, Nancy thought. There are schools in other cities. This won't keep me down. But when I'm a woman, I'll fight to see that these things don't happen to other girls as this happened to me. And men and women like Ms. O'Shea will help me. She took her seat among the seniors. The doors of the auditorium closed. As the principal came onto the platform, the students rose and turned their eyes to the flag on the stage. One hand went to the heart, the other outstretched toward the flag. Three thousand voices spoke. Among them was the voice of a dark girl whose cheeks were suddenly wet with tears. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That is the land we must make, she thought. Langston Hughes is mostly known for his groundbreaking poetry during the Harlem Renaissance, but I found this gorgeous and well-crafted prose story from 1942 recently and had to include it. Hughes' optimism rings with great strength, but the reality of his hopes show to be a dream deferred 70 years later. Do we think that Miss O'Shea brought this issue to the school board? Do we think that if she did, anything came of it? 
Hughes paints Miss O'Shea as a heroic figure, but viewed from a contemporary perch, we know that even if her intent is true, the system that she exists within will make it nigh impossible until, well, I don't know. Uh, I do know that the Civil Rights Bill wasn't passed for another 22 years. Heck, can we even say that this type of discrimination is absent in America today? Certainly not. It seems Miss O'Shea's false equivalency of the Irish doesn't hold water, and the American allyship for blacks that Hughes seemed to think was right in front of him was a carrot viewed from his 1940s dreams that seems to stretch on into infinity. If we zoom in on the Harlem Renaissance and Hughes' place in it, we will first come to his legendary status as a staple of American poetics. Hughes was a massive cultural force during the early years of the Harlem Renaissance, working to rally a black aesthetic and touting racial consciousness as a source of inspiration, acting as a mentor to many young black voters. While Hughes experimented with the leftist politics that were so popular in Harlem at the time, and even had quite a large FBI file due to his reading of his poem Goodbye Christ in 1940, Hughes tried to stay out of the McCarthyism fury that followed, but gave in eventually after heavy pressure and threats, testifying at the House Un-American Activities Committee proceedings, which cost him his friendships with W.E.B. Du Bois and other leftists, and forced him away from his earlier political work. Hughes and his contemporaries did pave way for the second wave of Harlem Renaissance, partially led by fantastic and unheralded writer Anne Petrie. At 20 years old, Anne Petrie left her home of Old Saber, Connecticut for Harlem in 1938 to join her new husband and pursue her literary ambitions. She found quick success as a journalist for the Amsterdam News, People's Voice, and The Crisis, a monthly magazine published by the NAACP. Her early years in Harlem were also fueled by involvement in progressive political causes and membership in community of activists, labor leaders, visual artists, actors, and writers. In what seems a sharp contrast to Langston Hughes' One Friday Morning, Petrie's protagonists chased the American dream, but were thwarted at every turn. Her novel The Street, released in 1946, follows this formula and launched Petrie to a literary fame. The Street became the first novel by a black American woman to sell more than a million copies. Petrie's stories and work as an editor for The People's Voice helped to create a massive audience of politically engaged Harlem residents. Her fight for housing and equal opportunity brought her close to the heart of Harlem and provided her with a unique view into the progressive life of the 1940s. Here, with a rhythmic imagining of Anne Petrie's 1947 story, Solo on the Drums, is Reginald Andre Jackson with Christopher Icassiano. The orchestra had a week's engagement at the Ran Lert Theater at Broadway and 42nd Street. His name was picked out in lights on the marquee, the name of the orchestra, and then his name, underneath by itself. There had been a time when he would have been excited by it and stopped to let his mind and his eyes linger over it lovingly. Kid Jones, the name, his name, up there in lights that danced and winked in the brassy sunlight. And at night, his name glittered up there on the marquee as though it had been sprinkled with diamonds. People who pushed their way through the crowded street looked up at it and recognized it and smiled. He used to eat it up. But not today. Not after what happened this morning. 
He just looked at the sign with his name on it. There it was. Then he noticed that the sun had come out and he shrugged and went on inside the theater to put on one of the cream-colored suits and get his music together. After he finished changing his clothes, he glanced at the long mirror in his dressing room. He hadn't changed any. Same face, no fatter and no thinner, no gray hair, nothing. He frowned because he felt that the things that were eating him up inside ought to show, but they didn't. When it was time to go out on the stage, he took his place behind the drums, not talking, just sitting there. The orchestra started playing softly. He made a mental note of the fact that the boys were working together as smoothly as though each one had been oiled. The long gray curtains parted. One moment they were closed and then they were open, silently, almost like magic. The high-powered spots flooded the stage with light. He could see specks of dust gliding down the wide beams of light. Under the bands of light, the great space out front was all shadow. Faces slowly emerged out of it. Disembodied heads and shoulders that slanted up and back almost to the roof. He hit the drums lightly, regularly. A soft, barely discernible rhythm, a background, a repeated emphasis for the horns and the piano and the violin. The man with the trumpet stood up. First notes came out sweet and clear and high. Kid Jones kept up the drum accompaniment, slow, careful soft, and he felt his left eyebrow lift itself and start to twitch as the man played the trumpet. It happened whenever he heard the trumpet. The notes crept up higher, 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 so high that his stomach sucked in against itself. Then a little lower and stronger, a sound sustained, the rhythm of it beating against his ears until he was filled with it and sighing with it. He wanted to cover his ears with his hands because he kept hearing a voice that whispered the same thing over and over again. The voice was trapped somewhere under the roof, caught and held there by the trumpet. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. The sound took him straight back to the rain, the rain that had come with the morning. He could see the beginning of the day, raw and cold. He was at home but he was warm because he was close to her, holding her in his arms. The rain and the wind cried softly outside the window. And now, well, he felt as though he were floating up and up and up on that long blue note of the trumpet. He half closed his eyes and rode up on it. It had stopped being music. It was that whispering voice making him shiver, hating it, and not being able to do anything about it. I'm leaving. It's the guy who plays the piano. I'm in love with him, and I'm leaving now, today. Rain in the streets. Heat gone, food gone, everything gone because a woman's gone. It's everything you ever wanted, he thought. It's everything you never got, everything you ever had, everything you ever lost. It's all there in the trumpet. 
pain and hate and trouble and peace and quiet and love. The last note stayed up in the ceiling, hanging on and on. Man with the trumpet had stopped playing, but Kid Jones could still hear the last note in his ears and his mind. Spotlight shifted and landed on Kid Jones, the man behind the drums. The long beam of white light struck the top of his head and turned him into a pattern of light and shadow. Because of the cream-colored suit and shirt, his body seemed to be encased in light. But there was a shadow over his face so that his features blended and disappeared, his hairline receding so far back that he looked like a man with a face that never ended, a man with a high, long face and dark, dark skin. He caressed the drums with the brushes in his hands. They responded with a whisper of sound. The rhythm came over, but it had to be listened for. It stayed that way for a long time. Low, insidious, repeated. Then he made the big bass drum growl and pick up the same rhythm. The Marquis of Brund, pianist with the band, turned to the piano. The drums and the piano talked the same rhythm. The piano high, a little more insistent than the drums. The marquee was turned sideways on the piano bench. His left foot tapped out the rhythm. His cream-colored suit sharply outlined the bulkiness of his body against the dark gleam of the piano. The drummer and the pianist were silhouetted in two separate brilliant shafts of light. The drums slowly dominated the piano. The rhythm changed. It was faster. Kid Jones looked out over the crowded theater as he hit the drums. He began to feel as though he were the drums and the drums were he. The theater throbbed with the excitement of the drums. A man sitting near the front shivered and his head jerked to the rhythm. A sailor put his arm around the girl sitting beside him, took his hand and held her face still and pressed his mouth close over hers. Close, close, close their faces seemed to melt together. Her hat fell off and neither of them moved. His hand dug deep into her shoulder and still they didn't move. The kid sneaked in through a side door and slid into an aisle seat. His mouth was wide open and he clutched his cap with both hands tight and hard against his chest as he listened. The drummer forgot he was in the theater. It was only he and the drums, and they were far away, long gone. He was holding Lulu, Helen, Susie, Mamie close in his arms. And all of them, all those girls, blended into that one girl who was his wife, the one who said, I'm leaving. She said it over and over again this morning while rain dripped down the window pane. When he hit the drums again, it was with the thought that he was fighting with the piano player. He was choking the Marquis of Braun. He was putting a knife in clean between his ribs. He was slitting his throat with a long straight blade. 
take my woman, take your life. Drums leap with the fury that was in him. Then the band turned their heads toward him. Faint astonishment showed in their faces. They ignored them. The drums took him away from them, took him back and back and back in time and space. He built up an illusion. He was sending out the news. Grandma died. The foreigner in the litter has an old disease and will not recover. The man from across the big water is sleeping with the chief's daughter. Kill, kill, kill. The war goes well with the men with the bad smell and the loud laugh. It goes badly with the chiefs with the round heads and the peacocks walk. It is cool in the deep track in the forest. Cool and quiet. Trees talk softly. They speak of the dance tonight. The young girl from across the lake will be there. Her waist is slender and her thighs are rounded. Then the words he wanted to forget were all around Kid Jones again. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. He couldn't help himself. He stopped hitting the drums and stared at the Marquis of Brand. A long, malevolent look filled with hate. There was a restless, uneasy movement in the theater. He remembered where he was. He started playing again. The horn played a phrase, soft and short. The drums answered. The horn said the same thing all over again. The drums repeated it. The next time, it was more intricate. The phrase was turned around and went back and forth and up and down, and the drums said it all over, exactly the same. He knew a moment of panic. This is where he had to solo again, and he wasn't sure he could do it. He touched the drums lightly. They quivered and answered him. And then, as though the drums were talking about his own life. The woman in Chicago who hated him. The girl with the round, soft body who had been his wife and who had walked out on him this morning in the rain. The old woman who was his mother. The same woman who lived in Chicago and who hated him because he looked like his father. His father who had seduced her and left her years ago. He forgot the theater. He forgot everything but the drums. He was welded to the drums, sucked inside them, all of it. His pulse beat, his heart beat. He had become part of the drums. They had become part of him. He made the big bass rumble and reverberate. He went a little mad on the big bass. Again and again, it filled the theater with the sound of thunder. The sound seemed to come not from the drums, but from deep inside himself. It was a sound that was being wrenched out of him, a violent, raging, roaring sound. As it issued from him, he thought, this is the story of my love. This is the story of my hate. This is all there is left of me. And the sound echoed and re-echoed far up under the roof of the theater.
when he finally stopped playing, he was trembling. His body was wet with sweat. He was surprised to see that the drums were sitting there in front of him. He hadn't become part of them. He was still himself, Kid Jones, master of the drums, greatest drummer in the world, selling himself a little piece at a time, every afternoon, twice every evening. Only this time, he had topped all his other performances. This time, playing like this after what had happened in the morning, he had sold all of himself, not just a little piece. Someone kicked his foot. Bow, you Abe. What's the matter with you? He bowed from the waist, and the spotlight slid away from him down his pant legs. The light landed on the Marquis of Brun, the piano player. The Marquis's skin glistened like a piece of black seaweed. Then the light was back on Kid Jones. He felt hot, and he thought, I stink of sweat. The talcum he had dabbed on his face after he shaved felt like a constricting layer of cement. A thin layer, but definitely cement. No air could get through to his skin. He reached for his handkerchief and felt the powder and the sweat mix as he mopped his face. Then he bowed again. And again. Like a... Not like one of those things. You pull the string and it jerks. Goes through the motion of dancing. Pull it again and it kicks. Yeah, he thought. You are hot, all right. The jitterbugs ate you up. And you haven't any place to go. Since this morning, you haven't had any place to go. I'm leaving. It's the guy who plays the piano. I'm in love with the Marquis of Brun. He plays such sweet piano. I'm leaving, leaving, leaving. He stared at the Marquis of Brun for a long moment. Then he stood up and bowed again. And again. <laughs> Petrie's time in Harlem was short-lived. During the Cold War, surveillance was a way of life for black leftists. So much so that most assumed they were always being watched and would often adjust or censor their own activism to protect themselves from persecution. Although Petrie regularly wrote about communist ideology in her fiction and associated with prominent leftist leaders, Petrie was never seemingly put under surveillance. There's a lot of speculation as to why she never made it onto a blacklist, but I have no doubt that her gender and decisive response to McCarthyism had a lot to do with it. To escape the Red Scare, Petrie and her husband moved back to Connecticut, where Petrie became a relative recluse for much of the rest of her life. Many describe this latter portion of Petrie's career as one of self-surveillance, a way to keep her life and privacy a priority while still continuing to write with her own voice, an unfortunate common strategy at the time. However, there are many questions unanswered about Petrie's life. The author conducted a late career shred and burn campaign that destroyed many of her letters and writing, leaving a huge gap in history, so we can't be sure much about her post-Harlem life. It is a great travesty that this period of American internal intervention led to so many fantastic black artists jailed, censored, and generally interrupted from what should be storied artistic careers. The focus of surveillance on the black members of the Harlem Renaissance left a gap in American art that can never be reclaimed. Polish-born American writer of novels, short stories, and essays, Isaac Basheva Singer was the recipient of the 1978 Nobel Prize for Literature. 
His stories were written almost exclusively in Yiddish and were saturated with Jewish folklore and mysticism, often displaying his understanding of the inherent weaknesses in human nature. When given the Nobel Prize, the committee said it was for his impassioned narrative art, which, with roots in Polish-Jewish cultural tradition, brings universal human conditions to life. The Key was written in 1969 and is the tale of a reclusive woman suffering from loss and learning through a night of spiritual empathy to finally look up. A story that feels as equally fitting in the 1920s as in 2020, The Key is about where we direct our pain and the paths we find when we learn to open our heart. Pleased to have the fantastic Julie Briskman back again to read The Key by Isaac Pesheve Singer. At about three o'clock in the afternoon, Bessie Popkin began to prepare to go down to the street. Going out was connected with many difficulties, especially on a hot summer day. First, forcing her fat body into a corset, squeezing her swollen feet into shoes, and combing her hair, which Bessie dyed at home and which grew wild and was streaked in all colors, yellow, black, gray, red, then making sure that while she was out, her neighbors would not break into her apartment and steal linen, clothes, documents, or just disarrange things and make them disappear. Besides human tormentors, Bessie suffered from demons, imps, evil powers. She hid her eyeglasses in the night table and found them in a slipper. She placed her bottle of hair dye in the medicine chest. Days later, she discovered it under the pillow. Once, she left a pot of borscht in the refrigerator, but the unseen took it from there, and after long searching, Bessie came upon it in her clothes closet. On its surface was a thick layer of fat that gave off the smell of rancid tallow. What she went through. How many tricks were played on her, and how much she had to wrangle in order not to perish or fall into insanity? Only God knew. She had given up the telephone because racketeers and degenerates called her day and night, trying to get secrets out of her. The Puerto Rican milkman once tried to rape her. The errand boy from the grocery store attempted to burn her belongings with a cigarette. To evict her from the rent-controlled apartment where she had lived for 35 years, the company and the superintendent infested her rooms with rats, mice, cockroaches. Bessie had long ago realized that no means were adequate against those determined to be spiteful. Not the metal door, the special lock, her letters to the police, the mayor, the FBI, and even the president in Washington. But while one breathed, one had to eat. It all took time, checking the windows, the gas vents, securing the drawers. Her paper money she kept in volumes of the encyclopedia in back copies of National Geographic, and in Sam Popkins' old ledgers. Her stocks and bonds Bessie had hidden among the logs in the fireplace, which was never used, as well as under the seats of the easy chairs. Her jewels she had sewn into the mattress. There was a time when Bessie had safe deposit boxes at the bank, but she long ago convinced herself that the guards there had pass keys. At about five o'clock, Bessie was ready to go out. She gave a last look at herself in the mirror. Small, broad, with a narrow forehead, a flat nose, 
and eyes slanting and half-closed. Her chin sprouted a little white beard. She wore a faded dress and a flowered print, a misshapen straw hat trimmed with wooden cherries and grapes, and shabby shoes. Before she left, she made a final inspection of the three rooms and the kitchen. Everywhere there were clothes, shoes, and piles of letters that Bessie had not opened. Her husband, Sam Popkin, who had died almost 20 years ago, had liquidated his real estate business before his death because he was about to retire to Florida. He left her stocks, bonds, and a number of passbooks from savings banks, as well as some mortgages. To this day, firms wrote to Bessie, sent her reports, checks. The Internal Revenue Service claimed taxes from her. Every few weeks, she received announcements from a funeral company that sold plots in an airy cemetery. In former years, Bessie used to answer letters, deposit her checks, keep track of her income and expenses. Lately, she'd neglected it all. She even stopped buying the newspaper and reading the financial section. In the corridor, Bessie tucked cards with signs on them that only she could recognize between the door and the doorframe. The keyhole she stuffed with putty. What else could she do? A widow without children, relatives, or friends? There was a time when the neighbors used to open their doors, look out, and laugh at her exaggerated care. Others teased her. That had long passed. Bessie spoke to no one. She didn't see well either. The glasses she had worn for years were of no use. To go to an eye doctor and be fitted for new ones was too much of an effort. Everything was difficult. Even entering and leaving the elevator, whose door always closed with a slam. Bessie seldom went farther than two blocks from her building. The street between Broadway and Riverside Drive became noisier and filthier from day to day. Hordes of urchins ran around half-naked. Dark men with curly hair and wild eyes quarreled in Spanish with little women whose bellies were always swollen in pregnancy. They talked back in rattling voices. Dogs barked, cats meowed, fire broke out, and fire engines, ambulances, and police cars drove up. On Broadway, the old groceries had been replaced by supermarkets, where food must be picked out and put in a wagon, and one had to stand in line before the cashier. God in heaven, since Sam died, New York, America, perhaps the whole world was falling apart. All the decent people had left the neighborhood, and it was overrun by a mob of thieves, robbers, whores. Three times Bessie's pocketbook had been stolen. When she reported it to the police, they just laughed. Every time one crossed the street, one risked one's life. Bessie took a step and stopped. Someone had advised her to use a cane, but she was far from considering herself an old woman or a cripple. Every few weeks she painted her nails red. At times when the rheumatism left her in peace, she took clothes she used to wear from the closets, tried them on, and studied herself in the mirror. Opening the door of the supermarket was impossible. She had to wait till someone held it for her. The supermarket itself was a place that only the devil could have invented. The lamps burned with a glaring light. People pushing wagons were likely to knock down anyone in their path. The shelves were either too high or too low. The noise was deafening, and the contrast between the heat outside and the freezing temperature inside? It was a miracle she didn't get pneumonia. More than anything else, Bessie was tortured by indecision. She picked up each item with a trembling hand and read the label. 
This was not the greed of youth, but the uncertainty of age. According to Bessie's figuring, today's shopping should not have taken longer than three quarters of an hour, but two hours passed and Bessie was still not finished. When she finally brought the wagon to the cashier, it occurred to her that she had forgotten the box of oatmeal. She went back and a woman took her place in line. Later, when she paid, there was new trouble. Bessie had put the bill in the right side of her bag, but it was not there. After long rummaging, she found it in a small change purse on the opposite side. Yes, who could believe that such things were possible? If she told someone, they would think she was ready for the madhouse. When Bessie went into the supermarket, the day was still bright. Now it was drawing to a close. The sun, yellow and golden, was sinking toward the Hudson to the hazy hills of New Jersey. The buildings on Broadway radiated the heat they had absorbed. From under gratings where the subway trains rumbled, evil-smelling fumes arose. Bessie held the heavy bag of food in one hand, and in the other, she grasped her pocketbook tightly. Never had Broadway seemed to her so wild, so dirty. It stank of softened asphalt, gasoline, rotten fruit, excrement of dogs. On the sidewalk, among torn newspapers and the butts of cigarettes, pigeons hopped about. It was difficult to understand how these creatures avoided being stepped on in the crush of passers-by. From the blazing sky, a golden dust was falling. Before a storefront hung with artificial grass, men in sweated shirts poured papaya juice and pineapple juice into themselves with haste, as if trying to extinguish a fire that consumed their insides. Above their heads hung coconuts carved in the shapes of Indians. On a side street, black and white children had opened a hydrant and were splashing naked in the gutter. In the midst of that heat wave, a truck with microphones drove around blaring out shrill songs and deafening blasts about a candidate for political office. From the rear of the truck, a girl with hair that stood up like wires threw out leaflets. It was all beyond Bessie's strength. Crossing the street, waiting for the elevator, and then getting out on the fifth floor before the door slammed, Bessie put the groceries down at the threshold and searched for her keys. She used her nail file to dig the putty out of the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. But whoa, the key broke. Only the handle remained in her hand. Bessie fully grasped the catastrophe. The other people in the building had copies of their keys hanging in the superintendent's apartment, but she trusted no one. Some time ago, she had ordered a new combination lock, which she was sure no master key could open. She had a duplicate key somewhere in a drawer, but with her, she carried only this one. Well, this is the end, Bessie said. There was nobody to turn to for help. The neighbors were her blood enemies. The super only waited for her downfall. Bessie's throat was so constricted that she could not even cry. She looked around, expecting to see the fiend who had delivered this latest blow. Bessie had long since made peace with death, but to die on the steps or in the streets was too harsh. And who knows how long such agony could last? She began to ponder. Was there still open somewhere a store where they fitted keys? Even if there were, what could the locksmith copy from? He would have to come up here with his tools. For that, one needed a mechanic associated with the firm which produced these special locks. 
if at least she had money with her. But she never carried more than she needed to spend. The cashier at the supermarket had given her back only some twenty-odd cents. Oh, dear Mama, I don't want to live any more. Bessie spoke Yiddish, amazed that she suddenly reverted to that half-forgotten tongue. After many hesitations, Bessie decided to go back down to the street. Perhaps a hardware store or one of those tiny shops that specialize in keys was still open. She remembered that there used to be such a key stand in the neighborhood. After all, other people's keys must get broken. But what, what should she do with the food? It was too heavy to carry with her. There was no choice. She would have to leave the bag at the door. Ugh, they steal anyhow, Bessie said to herself. Who knows? Perhaps the neighbors intentionally manipulated her lock so that she would not be able to enter the apartment while they robbed her or vandalized her belongings. Before Bessie went down to the street, she put her ear to the door. She heard nothing except a murmur that never stopped, the cause and origin of which Bessie could not figure out. Sometimes it ticked like a clock, other times it buzzed or groaned an entity imprisoned in the walls or the water pipes. In her mind, Bessie said goodbye to the food, which should have been in the refrigerator, not standing here in the heat. The butter would melt, the milk would turn sour. It's a punishment. I am cursed. Cursed, Bessie muttered. A neighbor was about to go down in the elevator, and Bessie signaled him to hold the door for her. Perhaps he was one of the thieves. He might try to hold her up, assault her. The elevator went down, and the man opened the door for her. She wanted to thank him, but remained silent. Why thank her enemies? These were all sly tricks. When Bessie stepped out into the street, night had fallen. The gutter was flooded with water. The street lamps were reflected in the black pool as in a lake. Again, there was a fire in the neighborhood. She heard the wailing of a siren, the clang of fire engines. Her shoes were wet. She came out on Broadway, and the heat slapped her like a sheet of tin. She had difficulty seeing in daytime. At night, she was almost blind. There was light in the stores, but what they displayed, Bessie could not make out. Passers-by bumped into her, and Bessie regretted that she didn't have a cane. Nevertheless, she began to walk along, close to the windows. She passed a drugstore, a bakery a shop of rugs, a funeral parlor, but nowhere was there a sign of a hardware store. Bessie continued on her way. Her strength was ebbing, but she was determined not to give up. What should a person do when her key was broken off? Die? Perhaps apply to the police? There might be some institution that took care of such cases, but where? There must have been an accident. The sidewalk was crowded with spectators. Police cars and an ambulance blocked the street. Someone sprayed the asphalt with a hose, probably cleaning away the blood. It occurred to Bessie that the eyes of the onlookers gleamed with an uncanny satisfaction. They enjoy other people's misfortunes, she thought. It is their only comfort in this miserable city. No, she wouldn't find anybody to help her. She had come to a church. A few steps led to the closed door, which was protected by an overhang and darkened by shadows. Bessie was barely able to sit down. Her knees wobbled. Her shoes had begun to pinch in the toes and above the heels. A bone in her corset broke and cut into her flesh. 
Well, all the powers of evil are upon me tonight. Hunger mixed with nausea gnawed at her. An acid flux came up into her mouth. She remembered the Yiddish proverb, If one lives without a reckoning, one dies without confession. She had even neglected to write her will. Bessie must have dozed off, because when she opened her eyes, there was a late-night stillness, the street half-empty and darkened. Store windows were no longer lit. The heat had evaporated and she felt chilly under her dress. For a moment she thought that her pocketbook had been stolen, but it lay on a step below her where it had probably slipped. Bessie tried to stretch out her hand for it. Her arm was numb. Her head, which rested against the wall, felt as heavy as a stone. Her legs had become wooden. Her ears seemed to be filled with water. She lifted one of her eyelids and saw the moon. It hovered low in the sky over a flat roof, and near it twinkled a greenish star. Bessie gaped. She had almost forgotten that there was a sky, a moon, stars. Years had passed, and she never looked up. Always down. Her windows were hung with draperies so that the spies across the street could not see her. Well... If there was a sky, perhaps there was also a god. Angels? Paradise? Where else did the souls of her parents rest? And where was Sam now? She, Bessie, had abandoned all her duties. She never visited Sam's grave in the cemetery. She didn't even light a candle on the anniversary of his death. She was so steeped in wrangling with the lower powers that she did not remember the higher ones. For the first time in years, Bessie felt the need to recite a prayer. The Almighty would have mercy on her even though she did not deserve it. Father and mother might intercede for her on high. Some Hebrew words hung on the tip of her tongue, but she could not recall them. Then she remembered. Hear, O Israel. But what followed? God forgive me, Bessie said. I deserve everything that falls on me. It became even quieter and cooler. Traffic lights changed from red to green, but a car rarely passed. From somewhere, a Negro appeared. He staggered. He stopped not far from Bessie and turned his eyes to her. Then he walked on. Bessie knew that her bag was full of important documents, but for the first time, she did not care about her property. Sam had left her a fortune. It had all gone for naught. She continued to say for her old age as if she were still young. How old am I? Bessie asked herself. What have I accomplished in all these years? Why didn't I go somewhere, enjoy my money, help somebody? Something in her laughed. <laughs> I was possessed completely, not myself. How else can it be explained? Bessie was astounded. She felt as if she had awakened from a long sleep. The broken key had opened a door in her brain that shut when Sam died. The moon had shifted to the other side of the roof, unusually large, red, its face obliterated. It was almost cold now. Bessie shivered. She realized that she could easily get pneumonia, but the fear of death was gone, along with her fear of being homeless. Fresh breezes drifted from the Hudson River. New stars appeared in the sky. A black cat approached from the other side of the street. 
For a while, it stood on the edge of the sidewalk, and its green eyes looked straight at Bessie. Then, slowly and cautiously, it drew near. For years, Bessie had hated all animals. Dogs, cats, pigeons, even sparrows. They carried sickness. They made everything filthy. Bessie believed that there was a demon in every cat. She especially dreaded an encounter with a black cat, which was always an omen of evil. But now Bessie felt love for this creature that had no home, no possessions, no doors or keys, and lived on God's bounty. Before the cat neared Bessie, it smelled her bag. Then it began to rub its back on her leg, lifting up its tail and meowing. The poor thing is hungry. I wish I could give her something. How can one hate a creature like this? Oh, mother of mine, I was bewitched. Bewitched? I'll begin a new life. A treacherous thought ran through her mind. Perhaps remarry? The night did not pass without adventure. Once, Bessie saw a white butterfly in the air. It hovered for a while over a parked car and then took off. Bessie knew it was the soul of a newborn baby, since real butterflies do not fly after dark. Another time, she wakened to see a ball of fire, a kind of lit-up soap bubble, soar from one roof to another and sink behind it. She was aware that what she saw was the spirit of someone who had just died. Bessie had fallen asleep. She woke up with a start. It was daybreak. From the side of Central Park, the sun rose. Bessie could not see it from here, but on Broadway, the sky became pink and reddish. On the building to the left, flames kindled in the windows. The panes ran and blinked like the portholes of a ship. A pigeon landed nearby. It hopped on its little red feet and pecked into something that might have been a dirty piece of stale bread or dried mud. Bessie was baffled. How do these birds live? Where do they sleep at night? And how can they survive the rains and the cold and the snow? I will go home, Bessie decided. People will not leave me in the streets. Getting up was a torment. Her body seemed glued to the step on which she sat. Her back ached and her legs tingled. Nevertheless, she began to walk slowly toward home. She inhaled the moist morning air. It smelled of grass and coffee. She was no longer alone. From the side streets, men and women emerged. They were going to work. They bought newspapers at the stand and went down into the subway. They were silent and strangely peaceful, as if they too had gone through a night of soul-searching and come out of it cleansed. When do they get up if they're already on their way to work now? Bessie marveled. No. Not all in this neighborhood were gangsters and murderers. One young man even nodded good morning to Bessie. She tried to smile at him, realizing she had forgotten that feminine gesture she knew so well in her youth. It was almost the first lesson her mother had taught her. She reached her building, and outside it stood the Irish super, her deadly enemy. He was talking to the garbage collectors. He was a giant of a man with a short nose, a long upper lip, sunken cheeks, and a pointed chin. His yellow hair covered a bald spot. He gave Bessie a startled look. What's the matter, Grandma? Stuttering, Bessie told him what had happened to her. She showed him the handle of the key she had clutched in her hand all night. Mother of God! Oh, what shall I do? Bessie asked. 
I will open your door. But you don't have a pass key. We have to be able to open all the doors in case of fire. The super disappeared into his own apartment for a few minutes. Then he came out with some tools and a bunch of keys on a large ring. He went up in the elevator with Bessie. The bag of food still stood on the threshold, but it looked depleted. The super busied himself at the lock. He asked, What are these cards? Bessie did not answer. Why didn't you come to me and tell me what happened? To be roaming around all night at your age, my God. As he poked with his tools, a door opened, and a little woman in a housecoat and slippers, her hair bleached and done up in curlers, came out. She said, What happened to you? Every time I opened the door, I saw this bag. I took out your butter and milk. I put them in my refrigerator. Bessie could barely restrain her tears. Oh, my good people, she said. I... I didn't know that. The super pulled out the other half of Bessie's key. He worked a little longer. He turned a key and the door opened. The cards fell down. He entered the hallway with Bessie and she sensed the musty odor of an apartment that has not been lived in for a long time. The super said, Next time if something like this happens, call me. That's what I'm here for. Bessie wanted to give him a tip, but her hands were too weak to open her bag. The neighbor woman brought in the milk and butter. Bessie went into her bedroom and lay down on the bed. There was a pressure on her breast, and she felt like vomiting. Something heavy vibrated up from her feet to her chest. Bessie listened to it without alarm, only curious about the whims of the body. The super and the neighbor talked, and Bessie could not make out what they were saying. The same thing had happened to her over 30 years ago when she had been given anesthesia in the hospital before an operation. The doctor and the nurse were talking, but their voices seemed to come from far away and in a strange language. Soon there was silence, and Sam appeared. It was neither day nor night, a strange twilight. In her dream, Bessie knew that Sam was dead, but that in some clandestine way he had managed to get away from the grave and visit her. He was feeble and embarrassed. He could not speak. They wandered through a space without a sky, without earth, a tunnel full of debris, the wreckage of a nameless structure, a corridor dark and winding, yet somehow familiar. They came to a region where two mountains met, and the passage between shone like sunset or sunrise. They stood there, hesitating, and even a little ashamed. It was like that night on their honeymoon when they went to Ellenville in the Catskills and were let by the hotel owner into their bridal suite. She heard the same words he said to them then, in the same voice and intonation. You don't need no key here. Just enter. And Mazel Tov. <laughs> Thank you to everyone for tuning in to Great Souls Times Signature, and thank you to all the fantastic artists that worked on the episode. If you like what you heard, please consider a donation. Also get set up with our newsletter, and keep your eyes peeled for I Take Your Hand in Mine, our audio drama that's releasing next month. And we may also be having a very special holiday episode of Great Souls that'll be dropping in December. But more than anything, stay safe, be
be the change and keep reading good stories. Oh, 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 oh,